We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service before the sermon, three passages were read from the Bible. Psalm 2, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 9 through 15, and Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Psalm 2, part of Mark 1, and part of Galatians 4, the three passages of Scripture we've heard tonight, they take us into the heart of Christianity, what's called the gospel or the good news of God's kingdom. Now, actually, it's when we understand the gospel as the good news of the kingdom, when we understand that, then we are ready to understand what Christianity is all about. And, and, it, and it kind of helps us to disentangle Christianity from a lot of the cultural trappings that tend to pollute and ultimately co-opt Christianity. It's when we understand the relationship of the word gospel to the words kingdom of God. Let's start with Psalm 2. Thanks, Alan, for reading this portion of Scripture. Psalm number 2 is a coronation psalm. So we're talking about a ceremony in which the new king is crowned the ruler. Okay, so in verses 1 through 3, the foreign nations and their rulers, they are rebelling against God and the king. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, verses 4 through 6 Here we find God is mocking those kings by announcing the installation of his own king in Zion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now Zion, this is the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. So it's kind of a shorthand way of saying that the king God chooses is in Jerusalem and will be over the entire world. Now, verses 7 through 9. This new king in Zion declares the mandate that God gives him at his coronation. So it's kind of like he's crowned and then God gives him a mandate, kind of his marching orders or job description. And in verses 7 through 9, He kind of reads it to the world. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, finally, in verses 10 through 12, the rebellious nations and leaders are warned about God's wrath. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. 
Hundreds of years after this psalm was written and used in the worshiping life of the Jewish community, hundreds of years later, this psalm is quoted and referred to countless times in reference to Jesus. In fact, the very first verse of Mark's gospel that Sarah Coleman read to us, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark is deliberately alluding to the coronation psalm, psalm number 2, when he calls Jesus the Son of God. All of the Jews that had heard that would have immediately kind of downloaded into their consciousness, into the hard drive of their memory. They would have gone back and thought of Psalm 2. Now, this is just one of the references. But here what we're seeing is that Mark is saying, Jesus is the king that God has anointed in Zion over all the world. And and notice that this has something to do with the gospel, this idea of a king and a kingdom. We see this down in verse 14 and 15. It says that now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this word gospel, it shows up in verse 1, again in verse 14, and again in verse 15. In verse 1, Mark, the author, says that the book he's writing about Jesus as the Son of God, he says that book itself is the gospel. And then in verse 14, he describes what Jesus did in his kind of public ministry. He describes it as Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God. And then in verse 15, he he tells us that one of the things Jesus said, actually the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark, is this, repent and believe in the gospel. So what is the gospel? Now, we use this word in several different ways today, right? We use it to talk about utterly reliable truth. We would say that's the gospel truth, right? We also use it as a genre of music. There's gospel music, black gospel music, these kinds of things. And sometimes people use it about a sort of religious meeting, like a gospel rally or something. Now, in the first century, when Mark wrote his book, which he called a gospel, The word gospel had two very specific and different meanings, all depending on the context. In the Roman culture, the word gospel was a technical term that referred to the good news announced on the emperor's birthday or the date marking his ascension to power, his rise to power. And for the Romans, the coming of a new ruler meant the promise of peace and the start of a new world. Now, in the Jewish culture, the word gospel had a different meaning. Listen to these words from Jewish scripture from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now this good news, it's the same word gospel that we're dealing with here in different language. The the gospel that brings the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, 
who brings good news, there it is again, of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So in the Jewish culture, gospel or good news was the message that Israel's long-awaited release from captivity to other nations was at hand. That God was finally going to accomplish what He promised in Psalm 2. When He promised, I'm going to coronate a king over everything and all the other kings are going to be trembling, right? So that gets picked up several hundred years later in the book of Isaiah and other places, and we begin to get this word good news or glad tidings or gospel. And for the Jewish people, gospel meant the message that God is finally releasing us from our captive and He is bringing His kingdom to bear on the whole earth. Now, go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now let's start with this time is fulfilled. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that, the, that with his arrival on the scene, God is acting in a new and decisive way. All the prerequisites have been fulfilled. The threshold of the great future promised by God in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 52 has been reached. The door has been opened and now the concluding act of the drama can begin. The kingdom of God. Jesus says, now that I'm here, the kingdom of God has finally arrived. You see, Mark, like Jesus and his followers, he's picking up both the Roman and the Jewish notion that's associated with good news, and he's mixing them all together. He's making a political statement. He's saying Caesar thinks he's the king. No, I'm the king. And he's making a religious statement. When Mark says that the story of the the life of Jesus, when Mark begins his book, This is the gospel of Jesus. When he begins the life of Jesus and he gives it that word, gospel, he describes it as good news. He is saying that Jesus' life, his teaching and his deeds, his healings and his exorcisms, his death and his resurrection, the very person of Jesus is a historical event that has inaugurated, it's kick-started the kingdom of God of God arriving to this earth. A whole new state of affairs has begun. God's reign has begun now that Jesus is king. Now let's turn to the final passage of Scripture that Sandy read to us. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul begins by setting up an analogy. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, 
is no different from a slave, though he's though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul is describing a scenario in which a child has no power over his father's estate until he is of age. In fact, he's under guardians. And instead of having power over the estate, the estate has this power over him. He's not free until the age that his father determines it's time for him to be free of these guardians and free to have in practice, what he already had in theory. Now, Paul uses this analogy to show us what the gospel is. Starting in verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Look, before Jesus came, there was slavery. We were enslaved to powers, basic powers in this world, powers of money, powers of pride, powers of nationality, powers of kind of um, religion. All of these powers were slave holders over us. But when the fullness of time had come, right? That's the same phrase Jesus used back in Mark 1. The fullness of time has come. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God's Son, referring back to Psalm 2, referring to Mark 1 that says Jesus is that Son of God born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that he might receive, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, just like Sloan might one day have an inheritance and now he's got it in theory and one day he might have it in practice, right? God said to the world, you've had a promise in theory, but now with Christ, he says, the time is come. You're of age now. What I want you to see is that here in verses 3 through 7, Paul, this is one way of describing the gospel. He's saying that the true God has sent his son, in fulfillment of his ancient promises. So some things that were true in theory before are now true in practice. And he also goes on to say, look in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by, by nature who are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. What he's saying here is that all of us are in bondage to false gods, whether it's religion or our reputation or pride or anger against someone or nationalism or fear of death. These are powers, elementary powers of this world. They're powers that get a hold of us and squeeze us in their grip. But in Jesus, we can be delivered from this bondage. And we can receive God's Spirit who will make us His children, heirs of His world. Okay, now let's tie it all together. Let's combine what we learn about the Gospel from Psalm 2 in Isaiah 52, and Mark 1, and Galatians 4. The gospel is this. It is the good news that God, the world's creator, 
has fulfilled His promise by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to inaugurate or to kickstart His kingdom, His reign, His rule in this world to set everything right. That's the gospel. It is the good news that a new king has been inaugurated, right? The birthday, the the ascension of the king. And it picks up those promises from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 52. It, it picks up the Roman culture and the, and, the, and the Jewish culture. It brings all this together and it says the gospel is the good news that God, the creator of the world, has kept His ancient promises by sending His Son to inaugurate His kingdom returning to this earth. Now that's astounding. I mean, really. If you think about what I've just said, I've just said that the Creator came in the flesh and kick-started a new creation. That's hard to believe. It's kind of mind-blowing. Jesus' life and deeds, His teachings, His miracles, His exorcisms and healings, those are not just manifestations of God's sympathy for people who are hurting. That's often how the miracles are preached and taught. We see Jesus healing somebody and we're taught about how much God cares for us. They are so much more than that. They are that. They are a manifestation of the sympathy that God has for us. But more than that, they are examples of the reign of God already beginning. In other words, when somebody's sick and Jesus heals them, it is the Reign of God. It's the authority of God. It is God kickstarting new creation. So we look at someone who's been healed and we can say, new creation. We look at Rwanda with the Peace and Reconciliation Commission, where there's incredible forgiveness that's occurring after the Rwandan genocide. And you know what that is? That's new creation. We look at Britain when they ended the slave trade without a civil war through the enormous efforts of the Christian William Wilberforce. And you know what that is? That's new creation, breaking through. I planted some little okra seeds about a week ago in my garden. We left for a week, came back, and they broke through the soil. We see this oftentimes when a husband and wife forgive one another in the power of God. New creation. They're signals. They're instances Actual instances of the kingdom of God, of God's reign returning to this earth. Their victories in the battle against evil and sin and death. And ultimately, it was in the death and resurrection of Jesus where he had the final battle with our great enemies, evil and death, and he achieved the decisive victory. Now, That's the gospel. So think with me for just a minute in closing what the gospel is not. The gospel is not the idea that God wants an inward, personal, sincere religion instead of an outward performance like going to church or something. And and the gospel is not taking the idea of heaven and hell and persuading people to choose the heaven option while it's available to them. That's not the gospel. 
Certainly those things are true. Certainly God does want us to have an inward, sincere religion, but he also wants us to have an external practice of that religion. And certainly God wants us to not spend an eternity removed from him. But the gospel is so much more holistic than those kind of narrow reductions of the gospel. The gospel is the powerful announcement that God indeed reigns. That that this God is none other than Jesus Christ. And he has started his final project of making everything right again. He's kick-started that project. It's happening. This is the theme that makes sense of the whole Bible. This is the bedrock of the Christian faith. It's the heart of Christianity. And there are a thousand different ways of saying it. You don't have to say it in the way I've just said it, it, the way that we pick up from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 52 and Mark 1 and Galatians 4. You can say it in lots of different ways, but however it's said and wherever it is said, there's a power that is unleashed when we announce it. When we announce that Jesus is the world's true King and He has defeated evil, and death. And he is setting up his kingdom even now. And it's breaking through here and there, just like those seeds in my garden. It's breaking through the crust of this broken world. When we announce that, there's a power that's unleashed. Paul put it this way in Romans 1, verse 16 or 17. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Look, Paul said, just announcing the gospel, there's an inherent power in that. Whenever the gospel is announced, people are instantly, gladly invited to come and to join the party, to discover forgiveness for the past, whatever their past, to discover an astonishing destiny in God's future, and to discover a reason for what you're doing right now. Whenever we announce that God is acting in a powerful way, with love in His heart and by His Spirit to restore all of His creation and all of human life to live again under His benevolent rule, whenever we announce that this new day dawned 2,000 years ago, it is a powerful summons to ultimate allegiance and absolute loyalty to Jesus Christ. I've seen this power around the world. I've seen it in in America. I've seen it in South America, in in Britain, in Africa, in Canada. I've seen with my own eyes when the gospel is preached, people discover Firing up within themselves this sense. Yeah, that makes sense. This idea that that they really believe it. When the message of King Jesus is announced, it brings faith out of us. People find it transforming the way they, they feel and think about all sorts of things. 
in the presence of Jesus suddenly becomes a reality for so many people. They, they, they can't get enough of Christian worship and fellowship and reading the Bible becomes exciting. You see, what I'm saying is that sharing the gospel is more than delivering a certain information. Sharing the gospel is actually the means of putting God's kingdom into effect. It is a decisive and authoritative summoning to a new and liberating allegiance. Remember Mark 1.15? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. To announce the gospel is to say that God's rule is within reach. and We can enter into it now. And there's more to come. And all of these little sightings of new creation that we're seeing now, they're going to pale in comparison to what it will be like on the great day of the Lord when He returns and all things, everything, is made new again. Now next week, we're going to look at how someone can become a Christian and how you and I can embrace the gospel more deeply into our own lives. And then after that, we'll deal with how we can live out the gospel as a church and share the gospel with others. This is just the first sermon in a series of sermons, Discovering Christianity. But this week, our focus is on the content of the gospel, the heart of Christianity. It's not on the implications of the gospel, the effects or the demands of the gospel. This week, tonight, we're seeing that the gospel is the radical news of the arrival of heaven on earth. The kingdom of God in and through Jesus Christ, His death, His life, its resurrection has occurred. And if we don't have that at the core of our church, at the core of our message, at the core of our practices, then we're dead in the water. But when we keep this whole gospel, not a reduced gospel, but the whole caboodle, when we keep the whole gospel at the center of everything we say, of the way we do church, the way we act, when we keep it at the center of our life, then there will be rising up in us new creation in unexpected places, in unexpected moments. And there will also be suffering. We will provoke opposition from those who want to keep Christianity as a private mode of some sort of religious experience. And we'll invite scorn from those who refuse to abandon their long-held politically and economically useful allegiances that the gospel challenges. And we will also be mocked by those who think what we believe is naive and passé. But we will be blessed by God. His Spirit, in those moments when we suffer, whether it's through mocking 
or scorn or opposition in those moments, His Spirit will cry out within us, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God will cry out of us and there will be an intimacy between us and the Father in those moments of persecution. Our faith will grow and our intimacy with the Father will deepen. Let's pray. Father, all things new, this church, we can commit ourselves to the Son and to His kingdom. We lash ourselves to the gospel. And we ask you, Father, to keep us centered. Help us to not drift. Open our eyes to your new creation that's happening all around us. And by your Spirit, bring life to the deserts of our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.